You're tuned into Economic and Political Weekly's new podcast show, Research Radio. We hope to bring academic rigor to ask and address complex questions. Our show lets you learn directly from researchers who are at the forefront of their fields. I'm Abhishek, your host, and I'm quite excited to share the first podcast of our series. We listen to two researchers who've spent time with women who've experienced domestic violence by their husbands and family members to understand the kind of interventions that can best support them. The insights they share are particularly important given that a landmark policy on domestic violence passed in 2005 called for every district in India to establish and run crisis centers for women who've experienced violence. 15 years later, we know little about how well these centers function. Research conducted by two scholars and published in EPW in April 2019 aims to change that. Dr. Shireen J. Jijibhoy brings over 30 years of experience in researching questions of health and demography. She is currently the director of the non-profit organization Aksha Center for Equity and Well-Being. Dr. K. G. Santhya holds 20 years of experience as a researcher studying youth and women's empowerment, reproductive health, and gender-based violence. She is currently with the Population Council in New Delhi. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jijibhoy and Dr. Santhya. Your article offers nuanced details about women's access to government facilities to address their ongoing experiences of domestic violence. What made you both interested in researching the role of government facilities? So there are a lot of women who experience violence in India. That's Dr. Santhya. And uh, even though it is declining, there will be many women who will be experiencing it. we need to understand not only what works to prevent violence but also what is called tertiary prevention i mean you know understanding what works to support those who experience violence and prevent further experience of it and i guess we also thought that we need to work with the public sector and that's dr gigi boy better understand what are the facilities and how they are working and actually india has a host of crisis centers they're called helplines but they're really crisis centers the, the phone component is is quite minimal and these exist in every district of bihar but not much is known on their functioning or their effect so we wanted to know who goes there where when do they go what support do they get does the interaction really reduce subsequent violence and improve the quality of women's lives what needs to be done to strengthen these services so there were a lot of questions that were unanswered and i think that also mot- motivated us to work in this area what makes the case of bihar particularly important to understand well bihar has the highest proportion of women who experience marital violence for example in 2015 16 43% of the married women are reported ever experiencing physical or sexual violence uh when it is 29% for india as a whole and it's also highly patriarchal state in which women's agency is very limited on the positive side it contains an active women development corporation as part of the department of social welfare and they have a, a wide network of this crisis centers could you share a few reasons why women usually turn to institutional methods only after violence reaches severe levels in general women don't even share with a family member or or a friend so it's generally kept very very much as a you know as something that happens to everyone or that something that she should be ashamed about or that something she should uh, that she deserved the recent movie thappad 
you've seen that, you'll see that a slap is also violence and can also shatter a woman's well-being, her self-confidence, her happiness. Uh, you see that in this film, the young woman was fortunate enough to have family support and took the legal route after a period of grief. But in patriarchal India, for most women, these options are not available. And a slap or a beating are perceived as a man's right and have to be tolerated. So women generally have few options. They don't have natal family support. They don't have an independent source of earning. They don't have protection if they were to leave their husband. So there, there are few options for them. So until the violence becomes really unbearable, women will talk. I mean, as Shireen said, in general, help-seeking is very limited. If we look at the most recent National Family Health Survey, just 14% of uh, women who experience either sexual or physical violence had sought any help. And you don't see any difference in terms of which women seek uh, support or care, whether the rich and the poor are equally uh, you know, likely not to seek care. The educated and the uneducated are in the same way. And even among those who seek that support, mostly it is an informal system. Like, you know, they may talk to somebody in the family, like uh, 65% who said they sought help, said they sought help from a, a family member. And hardly anyone goes to these uh, systems, like whether we are talking about the healthcare system or the legal system. It's like 1%, 3% kind of thing. Across women, you know, it is the informal system appears to be uh, giving some relief rather than the institutional system. But as our study shows, if they go to the system, they do seem to have a, a benefit too. I would say the informal system is more like a way of sharing and not a way of uh, taking action to reduce the violence. Right. And since your research focused on the women who do seek help, we have a notes from the field segment where we'd like to take our listeners inside a crisis center. Can you describe some of the steps a woman who has experienced abuse must take once she reaches there? Okay, so first let me describe the crisis center. It sounds rather sophisticated, but really it's a very small space. Physically, it's broken up into a couple of cubicles uh, with a bench for clients to wait on. And there's no auditory uh, privacy so what people are saying can be heard by others. There's very little visual privacy. So if a woman is crying, she can be seen by others. So it's not a particularly friendly place. Just to describe what happens. So typically, when a woman comes for the first time, her history is taken, her preference, what does she want to do, is recorded. And she's asked whether it's okay to call the perpetrator, who may be her husband or in-laws or whoever, for a meeting. If, if she says it's okay, a letter is sent out and an appointment is fixed with the perpetrator. And at that meeting, the perpetrators get an opportunity to tell their story, first individually and then together with the woman, with her consent, obviously. Almost always, the woman wants reconciliation and she wants reconciliation on certain terms. 
no violence, uh, regular support, uh, and so on. And so the discussion focuses on this. And they try to reach an ag- agreement, which the uh, protection officers follow up the case for a few months. An agreement is reached, an undertaking is signed, and then the case is considered closed, assuming all that happens. Of course, there may be others who want to go uh, the legal route or some other route, but this is typically what happens. And how did you attempt to understand their experience of consulting the crisis centers? you know, in consultation with the staff at the helpline, decided to interview the women the first time she re- uh, reaches the crisis center and before she received the uh, service. And given our interest of whether this intervention is helping women's, you know, further uh, reducing the further experience of violence, we decided to follow these women about three to four months later. And also another consideration was that we want to have a good follow-up rate with this woman. As many women we interviewed the first time, we wanted to re-interview them. So that is why, uh, you know, by repeatedly following the same women, we could see what are the changes the women have experienced. You know, we inquired about the violence they experienced in the month before the interview at both times. And also about uh, the general sense of well-being. I mean, going beyond, you know, uh, examining their violence experience, but also what happens to the general feeling of, you know, wellness kind of. Your questionnaire also asks about traumatic experiences, many of which were ongoing. How did you attempt to frame the questions and create an environment conducive and safe for sharing, keeping in mind the well-being of your respondents? Yes, you're right. We needed to be very sensitive uh, to their situation and experiences. So if women refused to join our study, We didn't pressure them in any way. We didn't ask the helpline staff to convince them. But in fact, very few actually refused. Women wanted to talk about their experiences. They want to share something that they've hidden for so long. And we had two research assistants who conducted these interviews in the two facilities that we had selected. And we had selected them very carefully. They were experienced, they were empathetic. And even so, they underwent considerable training themselves, not only about domestic violence and the facilities available to women, but also on how to ask questions in a supportive way. And so they built rapport with, with the women and in a way earned the trust of the women and actually Many of them continued to stay in touch with our research assistants even after the study was over. Our questionnaire was also designed so that we didn't hit them with sensitive questions early on. We got them to become a little more comfortable with the questions and with the interviewer, and then we asked these more sensitive questions. So we tried in many ways to ensure that our questions were framed in a way that that wouldn't exacerbate women's trauma. And what were women's expectations from the centre? So overwhelmingly, women go to the centre to get help with reconciliation. Uh, Two-thirds of women who, in our sample had done so. 10% in addition want reconciliation, but they want it, uh, want it with some conditions such as 
uh, residents away from the in-laws. Others wanted maintenance and financial support. Others wanted very few, but others wanted to ensure that dowry-related harassment was reduced or that the husband is stopped from remarrying or living with a second wife. And very few, just under 10%, I think 8% wanted to pursue divorce or legal separation. You identify three potential sources of stress for women, dowry, childlessness, and not having a living son. I was interested in learning about how women made sense of these sources of stress. Was there an understanding that such demands were based on discriminatory norms, or were they internalized as the fault of women themselves? Well, you know, one thing which uh, is very noticeable is that there is a, uh, a normalization of you know, violence against women. Uh, Even though we see that, you know, uh, the experience of violence has declined, for example, in Bihar from 59 percent in 2000, you know, uh, 6, 7 to 2015, now we are talking about 43 percent. The proportion of women who justify violence uh, that the husband's right to, you know, beat them in selected circumstances has not changed. Across the country, one out of two women says, as men have that right. So there is definitely, uh, you know, women also internalizing that, okay, women is at fault if the husband beats or slaps her. And there is also a great acceptance of, you know, uh, like a girl's family has to pay dowry. In actually, in our study, almost all women said their family had paid dowry. About 97% said uh, their family had paid uh, in cash or jewelry or in, you know, things. At the same time, more than two in five of these women reported their family, marital family was not at all satisfied with the amount of dowry bought. And about uh, one out of four women in our study was childless. And about half had not have a living son. Uh, so there is, from the women's side, is also there is an internalization that, yes, they need to come up with these expectations. And at the community level also, these you know, expectations prevail. But this is not to say that women who have brought a large dowry or have sons are protected from domestic violence. I think given the attitudes that, that Santhe was talking about, uh, where violence is perceived as so normal, so if, if the food is not ready on time, if the food is too salty, if children are making too much noise, a man is justified in beating his wife, irrespective of how many children they have. Alcohol is often seen as a trigger for violence, and the correlation between alcohol abuse and domestic violence is very strong. So there are many reasons that seem to exacerbate women's risk of facing domestic violence. And even those who are not experiencing those stressors that you mentioned may also be at risk. Right. And with respect to your research, what were your findings about physical, sexual and emotional violence at the start and after the four-month period? So we found that there was a considerable drop in physical violence. It went from 53% to 33%. Also, sexual violence went from 28% to 10% over this um, four-month period. But there was no change in emotional violence, which remained at 87 and 86%, or husband's alcohol abuse, which remained 
at 59 and 57%. Variation in the start date and the frequency and intensity tells us that women tolerate violence till it becomes unbearable. And so possibly it was those who tolerated violence longest may have been those who didn't achieve a reduction in violence over the four months. But uh, we are unable to look further into these issues in our data set. Can you tell me more about the role that crisis centers and women themselves might have played in this process? Simply sharing it with an person in authority was a very empowering experience for women. We know from some other work we've done that when women were given the phone number and card of the helpline, it was very empowering for them. If their husband tried to beat them, they would show them this card and try to prevent further violence themselves. Here, I think there was a lot of uh, input from the crisis center. In those four months, crisis center officials or staff members made visits to each one's home to see how things were going, whether things had improved. And so there was a lot of interaction there, which may have had a lot of spillover effects also on uh, the perpetrators that, you know, watch out. These people are, are going to be making regular trips. So I think all those aspects of the crisis center interaction made a big difference. Ultimately, that undertaking, it was an official document signed by everyone. That may also have had an effect on um, reducing subsequent violence or enabling the woman to get what she had wanted. As researchers, how did you make sense of the finding that women reported experiencing violence after they sought support from the center? That finding that some women, and it was less than 10%, who had not experienced violence earlier, but had done so after, it's definitely very worrying. It suggests that women who seek help are at risk. Husbands and families do seem to retaliate by continuing to perpetrate violence or perpetrate new forms of violence on women who have sought help. Some women actually never came back. That may also be the result of violence perpetrated on them uh, once the family or husband knew that, um, that she had gone to the crisis center. Perhaps this calls for systems that protect women who have sought crisis center support, perhaps through more regular, even more regular visits by protection officers or um, perhaps that would be a bit unrealistic, but perhaps local frontline workers could be trained to do the follow-up. They are there all the time, and perhaps they could play a, a supportive role at the local level. Are there unanswered questions that you continue to investigate? A critical question is that, you know, we do see a change uh, in the short term. And how long these you know, changes get sustained over time, whether it is in terms of attitudinal shift or in actual experience. So that is an important question. A related project which worked with boys of uh, the NYKS club, the Nehru Yuva Kendra clubs, we see attitudinal shift and we are following up those boys some five years later to see how this attitude you know, sustained or not. Uh, the initial results are promising, though we see the attitude shift is still sustained in them. 
you know, appreciating gender egalitarian attitudes. What do you see as the role of your academic research in terms of furthering equity for women who experience domestic violence? The crisis center, the WDC, were, were interested in understanding what was going on, just as we were. And so it was a very collaborative kind of um, study. And I think they took on board the, the kinds of findings, the implications of what our findings were. So, for example, now, I don't know, I don't think we can attribute, but, for example, frontline workers do now talk about violence at, uh, at the local level. Maybe not as much as we are recommending, but it is happening. So, in general, I think the research we did does further equity in several ways. I think it highlights the situation, the magnitude of violence, the help-seeking reluctance of women, the quality of services, and so on. And it showed what works and what doesn't. In our case, the helpline services helped enormously in reducing physical and sexual violence and improving certain indicators of well-being and help the system strengthen practices. But far more efforts are needed. For example, regular follow-up to ensure that retaliation is minimized, counseling and written undertakings, and much more about prevention. We are looking at the, the tertiary effects. But how do we ensure, as Santhya was talking about the NYKS program, that the next generation at least holds equitable gender attitude? Let me just say a little bit about our work with the boys, because as Shireen said, we have to ensure that you know our next generation uh, develop gender egalitarian attitude pretty early on. And so in this project, what we have done is that we worked with boys who are members of the Nehru Yuva Kendra uh, Club. There are youth clubs across lakhs and lakhs of villages in India. And we wanted to test, you know, if we expose them to a gender transformative curriculum along with uh, something which interests them like you know sports coaching and catch them early when they are age you know 12 year olds and 13 year olds uh, does it help them to uh, appreciate attitudes of egalitarian gender roles and you know denouncing violence against women and this was a you know testing an experiment to see whether it worked and when we did uh, you know the testing about an 18 months later we see that boys have become more uh, egalitarian in their attitude towards women denouncing violence but as i said it's an important question to see you know soon after you may see these changes but does it uh, sustain after say like four years or five years uh, very recently we went back and you know talked to these boys from both intervention and the comparison group uh, pleasantly, you know, we see that the boys from who are exposed to this intervention uh, still are upholding those attitudes, you know, and denouncing violence against women. Uh, we are also looking into is it transformed their, uh, you know, behavior also. The study is just ongoing. Uh, in that, that program of work, we also did some other studies so we looked at whether inserting a component of violence prevention in the regular activities of self-help groups, which, as you know, exist all over the country, 
well, we did this study in Bihar, has an effect on reducing violence, changing attitudes. And we did see, I mean, I, I would say our most successful change story was the, the boys' study. But here also, we tried to look at whether we could address women and we could address the husbands of women, which we found much more difficult. And finally, we worked with the health system to see whether frontline workers, the ASHAs, could be trained to identify women or screen women who were at risk of violence and then support them to uh, avoid or take help for the violence. So that's what I was saying. Uh, everyone was given a card in which they had the helpline number, and just that seemed to be an empowering experience. So we tried to look at all dimensions of, of um, violence. Uh, when we started off this uh, uh, the program of research, we were very particular that we are testing different models. We are assessing existing programs. So it was important that, you know, we make use of the system so that, you know, we don't want to create parallel systems in the first place. The, the intention was that, you know, not just test an intervention and then, you know, write papers like in APW and be happy with that. Uh, we wanted to take these messages uh, to a larger scale and uh, the government systems, the government structures offers you that opportunity. And to to our experience, and there is a, you know, a high level of receptivity to these ideas when we, you know, uh, initiated this discussion. For example, the Women Development Corporation in Bihar were very supportive and as Shri mentioned, you know, they have taken these findings forward, uh, even including in we were told that improving the the infrastructure where you know we 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 were concerned that there is no privacy for women Thank you so much Dr Santhya and Dr Gigi Boy for sharing with us about the details of your research The prevalence and normalization of domestic violence by men is astounding especially when we take into account how the home and families are seen as safe and sacred places. What I found most insightful about their research was the role that protection officers play and the power of patriarchal structures to compel women to seek reconciliation over other forms of accountability, redress and the option of living independent lives. I do recommend reading the entire article and I've shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Next week we'll hear from Dr. Jason Keith Fernandez who looks at the much celebrated 2018 Supreme Court ruling that decriminalized queer sex and learn about why we should be more cautious about the liberation it appears to offer. Make sure to subscribe to Research Radio on Spotify and Anchor Podcasts so that you don't miss out on that and our future podcasts. We'll be on Apple and Google Podcasts very soon. This is the first podcast of our new initiative and we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social@epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with your feedback. If you like what we're doing, do share it with interested folks. Thank you for listening and do tune in next week. Music